Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Johnny Rashid. Johnny has served as pastor for Circle of Hope. He is also the author of the recent book, Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Idle Threat. Idle Threat is a rock band from Nashville. You can get connected with Johnny and Idle Threat and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Johnny Rashid with me, and Johnny, you are you have served as the pastor for Circle of Hope, which we need to talk about that a little bit more. I really am curious about the work that you're doing with Circle of Hope. I think that kind of work in the church world is really, really interesting. I get probably a little too nerdy about ecclesiology, and I'm always really curious about what you guys are up to. But with that said, so you've done lots of other things in the world. You also have recently released an incredible book called Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. With that said, who is Johnny Rashid to Johnny Rashid? Well, I am first, I think first, like the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm, av- I'm an avid home cook. So Are you I too? really like home cooking quite a bit. So what's, what's, uh, all- what's your go-to dish right now? Like what's the thing that like... If 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 you had to make a dish for like a very esteemed guest, what's the thing that you want to make them? Well, I would make something in the walk. So Kenji Lopez Alt has a new book oh. out called The Walk. Yes. I hope you buy it. Um, I know you, you should interview Kenji later, but something out of that, you know, maybe some mapo tofu, smashed cucumber salad, something like, like that, that kind of uh Szechuan style food would be right, would, right. would be what I would go to. So that's really good. And and, th- and then like even with mapao too, you like it's seasoned with like pork or beef, but you could easily use mushrooms. So like mm-hmm. you can make it really accessible to different kinds of people, and everyone would like it. Wow! See, you really are a home cook. You should do yeah, a home cook uh, YouTube channel or something. Well, you can follow me at Food Pasture on Instagram to see what <laughs> I'm up to. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, this book that you wrote was definitely not about food, although maybe you could write like a food and Christianity type book at some point. That would be kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. But uh, yeah, so let's talk about the book. This is your first book, right? That's my first This is my debut, yes. Debut. Wonderful. Well, speaking of that then, what did you learn about yourself while writing your very first book? What was something that kind of came up in this writing process? You're like, wow, I did not know I had that in me. Well, probably the most significant thing that I learned as I was writing this book is a chapter that a lot of people have been talking about, about helping Circle of Hope become LGBT affirming. Early in the book, I talk about why I have a, my body is political. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I talked about Donald Trump's Muslim ban and how that motivated me to act politically and, and really advocate for the oppressed because... I was oppressed, right? Mm -hmm. There were kids that looked like my kids 
that couldn't get through security gates because the Muslim ban was passed January uh, 2017, right? So that motivated me. So that's one thing. And then I, I talked about how I helped make our church LGBT inclusive. And for me, that whole process was largely theological. It was uh, missional. It was abstract too. And then throughout writing this book, and I don't say it in this book, I realized, oh, this is also an embodied politic for me because I'm bisexual. Mm. And I realized that while writing this book. So wow. I essentially came out. And, I, and, and before, like, I wasn't particularly subtle with people. Like, my friends weren't surprised when I would describe things like my sexual fantasies or uh, where I am on the Kinsey scale, that sort of outdated spectrum, um, or like even flirting with uh, men. That would be something I did, but I never really concluded that I was bi. Mm. And this realization, my passion towards making uh, the church LGBT inclusive uh, was also rooted in my body. So there was a lot of clues along the way, you know, like preoccupation uh, with women's shoes, for example. And a friend mm-hmm. would say, oh, I think you want to wear women's shoes, Johnny. I'm like, oh, maybe I do. So like that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. would be like clues about my sexuality. But really the passion towards making the church LGBT inclusive was, you know, and I wrote it during the pandemic too. So like the pandemic took away so many of our coping mechanisms and so many things that have, I would say, kept us from ourselves. Mm. And like that process too helped me to know where my passions were coming from and where my desires were. So that was yeah. not worthy to me. Well, we'll definitely talk about that embodied politic here in just a second. Um, but before that, what did you learn theologically as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know before? Maybe there was something as you were doing research for whatever, and you were like, wait, I didn't know about that. Maybe historically about Christianity, theologically, some, something kind of along those lines. Sure. What I learned was that the plainest reading of the Bible is one that sides with the oppressed. You have to do a lot of theological and biblical work to undo what is rather plain in the gospels, right? Like Jesus is clearly there to uplift the lowly, right? Right from from birth in the Magnificat, right? Fill the poor with good things, send the the rich away empty, right? Um, John the Baptist is, is quoting Isaiah, you know, lower 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 hills raise valleys right jesus mm-hmm. is saying i have come for the oppressed and the downcast right it's so clear and even when you move to paul's corpus you see the same treatment of the lowly probably mm-hmm. the most significant thing is in first corinthians 12 a lot of christians will 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 say that being too politically committed is divisive paul says if you don't uplift the undesirable parts of the body and you don't elevate them and give them stature, the body will be divided. What keeps our churches united is elevating the oppressed. Mm. So I'm here to tell you, our churches are divided when you don't do that. So if you're interested in a united church, then you have to lift up the lowly and make us all on the same playing field. Then we can live in unity. Otherwise, the unity that you have falls on the back of the oppressed. We feel it. Our dignity is the uh, is on the line so like political pluralism results in a divided church you know political unity and solidarity that's a united church that's a united movement that's that's what i hope christianity can be um as opposed to tolerance of toxic political beliefs right Right. your preacher is coming right out i can i can see it you're like (laughs) you're on the pulpit right now i love it so like you mentioned before 
this book begins with you, this idea of politics being embodied. And obviously you talk about how politics are embodied in your own body. And I think this is a really profound concept to think that politics are an embodied phenomenon. So how is it that politics are placed upon our bodies? So I think that our lived experiences affect our politics. My experience as a brown person. See, I, I grew up I grew up in the United States as a child of immigrants. My parents came to the U.S. in the early 80s, and their politics were informed by their body, too, by their, by their experience, too. They grew up in, as religious minorities in Egypt. They moved to the United States and found themselves among a Christian majority, and that felt liberatory to them. Mm. I grew up as an ethnic minority during the war on terror, during 9-11. People called me bin Laden. They said I was a terrorist. I lived in a pyramid, all sorts of heinous things, you know. That informed my politics too. So like my lived experience as a brown person, as an Arab in the United States, informed my politics. And when we start to pay attention to our bodies and our experiences, politics becomes something that isn't abstract. And mm -hmm. white people have an opportunity. White people, uh, straight people, men, able-bodied people have an opportunity to see how their politics are also informed by their body, by their power, by their privilege, because mm -hmm. it's just as connected, right? We, we mm -hmm. all are informed by our bodies. It's just that sometimes our politics being informed by our bodies becomes oppressive because our bodies in our social positions are oppressive. Mm -hmm. So it, it, and when you see it as a matter of personal dignity and of body, then pluralism or a third way doesn't make sense. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't really work. You know, mm -hmm. we can't check politics at the door. We have to allow politics to get in our relationships because they are a part of our body. Mm -hmm. So that was the first chapter. You talk all about the embodied politic. Your second chapter is about Jesus and God siding with the oppressed. And you've already touched on this just for a second, but how can we know someone is oppressed, right? Like for example, you're Arab, but, and also a cis man. So like, does that mean you're oppressed? Like you're, you're Arab, but you're also a cis man, right? So like, you, you see how there's like so many different mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. forming our identities and our bodies. And so like, what I'm kind of curious is then like, it seems that we're, we, we all occupy certain kinds and different degrees of oppression. And sure. so I'm curious, like how we think through that statement that God sides with the oppressed when, uh, yeah. So, like, I'm kind of curious, like, how we think through statements like that and politics like that, that God sides with the oppressed, when oppression seems really multifaceted and really complex. Well, we have to think about it through an intersectional lens. It's important that we listen to everybody at the table and how they're oppressed, because you could be poor you could be disabled, you could be queer, you could be trans, you could be a racial minority, a sexual minority, a woman, all sorts of things uh, that oppress us, right? Acquainting ourselves with the experiences and the stories of these people is important, first of all. And second, in in integrating them together to understanding one another, right? Mm. Like white women who are calling the cops on black men are not engaged in that intersection. Right. We need mm -hmm. to they, they need to imagine themselves then as black women. Right. Or black, disabled, queer women. Right. Figure out how to incorporate the whole thing. And that's how, you know, like, I think that we all are oppressed. And 
becoming familiar with how we're oppressed should lead us to understand other oppression as mm. opposed to competing with other oppression, right? Mm. There's a difference between intersectionality and horizontal hostility, right? And, and I, I think that the, uh, the group in power, white, cis men with money, I would say particularly, benefit from when different oppressed, oppressed groups conflict with one another and fight with one another. And so mm. it's important for us to uh, be united in our oppression and allow our collective suffering to motivate us to action, right? right. So rather than considering our oppression greater than someone else's, we might want to put on their lens and understand where they're coming from. So right. as a, as a Brown man, right. I'm a, I'm as a Brown bisexual cis man, I'm familiar with both heteropatriarchy and homophobia, as well as racism. I may not be as familiar with ableism, ageism, or sexism. And so I then have to learn how I contribute to those systems because mm -hmm. of my cis maleness, if you will, right? right? And I'm also educated. So then how do I relate to people that are less educated? I come from a middle-class background. How do I relate to people that are lower class? Right. So it seems like when we make a statement like God sides with the oppressed, in some way, shape, or form, like you mentioned before, like we're all oppressed. So God is siding with all of us, but it really is the difficult work of kind of figuring out like how one is actually being oppressed. And again, it's all like multi-layered, layered, it's multifaceted, it's super complex. And that is like the tricky piece to it is like kind of sussing that out, figuring that out uh, of how different people are oppressed. But at the end of the day, from what you're saying, everybody is oppressed and we all need to be liberated in that case. That's right. I think that's right. You know, the main thing that oppresses us, I think, in the Christian tradition would be death. Jesus came to liberate us from death. And if you look at where death and the forces of death lie, you'll find oppression, right? Look mm. for death and you'll see where oppression is. Mm. So look at, look at black lives, look at trans lives, look at disabled people and see how they're dying, see how they're under-resourced, and then see through Jesus liberation coming. I love that. I've never really thought of it in that way. But yes, this like sort of unnecessary, violent death is a really, really great way of kind of determining who is actually being oppressed in our world. I think that's a really, really helpful, like really just like a tangible way of figuring that out really well. I really agree. So you obviously are one to think that the gospel is political. So when you say that the gospel is political, what do you mean? So what, what does it mean that the gospel is political? Well, let's start with the basic profession of faith that many of us make. Jesus is Lord. That's a determinative political statement. If Jesus is Lord, then Jesus um, unseats every other Lord that we have, whether it's the president of the United States or even local authorities, whether it's also the cops, right? Um, Jesus is Lord unseats other political offices and then also political offices within our body, like our whiteness, our maleness, our cisness, our, mm -hmm. uh, our able-bodiedness or our temporary able-bodiedness, right? Jesus is Lord is a political statement. And I think that allows us, that informs our politics by, uh, by submitting them to Jesus. I think that's extremely helpful. Um, and I also have like talked about before that Luke four, Jesus clearly lays out the gospel, you know, right? Like if we understand the gospel to be good news. Absolutely. And so in Luke four, Jesus lays that out, right? And he's, you know, obviously referencing Isaiah there, but 
like it's so funny to me when I hear Christians talk about the good news as if like you know people are being saved by Jesus so they can go to heaven or whatever when like Jesus clearly lays it out in totally. in Luke 4 and it has nothing to do with any of that it's you know good news for the poor the captives are set that's free exactly right? right like and it's like that clearly is the gospel and that's what Jesus says the gospel is so i don't know why we're not listening to Jesus when he clearly is articulating that to be the gospel and that we're somehow thinking the gospel is anything different than that mhm mhm you know, I th- yeah, I think it's clear that Jesus' allegiance with the captives. I mean, honestly, if you if you go back to like even Exodus, right? So like the whole story is incumbent upon liberation. A whole people is made through liberation. Passover reminds us of the liberation of the oppressed, and 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 you see that throughout the Old Testament. The political you can't have a Bible without politics. It's all over the text, right? And there's no separation really between religion and politics in the Bible. We have some obscure way of doing that now, but it really is not founded in the biblical tradition. So you talked about right at the beginning of that answer about how Jesus is Lord is a political statement. And I absolutely agree. What I have seen happen, at least in the 21st century, is people will say, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Like, you know, that that's my politic. And that's where it ends, right? Like they don't really have this robust politic and framework that they're working with. And a lot of those people, from what I've seen, also are the people that would say, you know, I'm too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals, that kind of thing. And to me, at that point, it just seems like a really unhelpful phrase to say that the gospel is political or that Jesus is Lord when you're really not utilizing an actual political framework. And so I'm kind of curious, like, what kind of framework do you think we should be using? What political framework should we be using that you do think aligns with the gospel? I get the hesitancy of saying that the gospel isn't Marxist or capitalist or whatever. Like, I get that, but it does seem unhelpful to not actually be utilizing some sort of political framework that you think aligns well with the gospel. So I'm kind of curious, like what you're maybe working with or what you would maybe suggest as a helpful political framework so that we don't get just stuck saying Jesus is Lord and that's the end of our politics. If we say Jesus is Lord, and then we think that Jesus is somehow carving a middle way or a third way or a moderate way. I don't think we're doing a careful reading of the Bible. I don't think that, I don't think Jesus in any way really finds a compromise. I think that he is building a radical way. And I don't think it's particularly somewhere in the middle. You know, I think that our, so when I say the gospel is political, that's one thing. I'm not saying the gospel is partisan. And Mm -hmm. so it has politics and it appears incidentally partisan in the United States, especially right now, because of how far right essentially the Republican party has become, but it also exceeds the the, uh, radicality of the Democrats who are a strange like if everybody in the U, like if everyone but the fascists are in one political party, it becomes rather um, vague what the party stands for. And I think right. we can see that in the ineptitude of the Democrats. I don't want to get into contemporary politics too much, but like they're not act- they're 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 pretty weak and not not very focused on specific goals. But Jesus moves us radically to to change the world, and he does so in a way that is divisive that is um, confrontational, right? Mm. Like we can see this clearly in Luke 18 when Jesus approaches, when the young rich ruler approaches Jesus and says, how do I gain eternal life? And he tells him, he ultimately will say, 
sell your possessions and give them to the poor, you won't gain eternal life then, but then you can follow me. And then he walks away discouraged because he can't. And then the disciples say, well, who then can be saved, right? Mm. If it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, how can we be saved? Well, what's impossible with mortals is possible with God. Great story. Luke 19 shows us exactly how that is possible because Zacchaeus does divest does give away his money, does liberate the people that he, that he defrauded, and then follows Jesus. So there's mm-hmm. one example of it not happening and another example of it happening. And Jesus is not finding a third way between those two. There's a clear way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with the parable of the great banquet. People were preoccupied with their jobs, their fields, their livestock, their marriages, by the way, mm-hmm. and they couldn't get, come to the table. So they found people that were available that had already a vacancy within them to be filled with good news. And so for me, Jesus is looking for lowly people to bless and to encourage, to heal. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what the gospel is. So we have to look, who are the lowly people here? And how does Jesus include them? The gospel is about surrounding the table with those people, not finding a moderate path. Well, I would imagine, I know this is true for me, but I would imagine even for you in your journey, that at some point you maybe were kind of one of those moderates or centrists that were thinking maybe there is this third way that, you know, Jesus isn't here to be divisive. It's He's political, but not divisive. Like, what would you encourage for the listener who may be listening right now? That is like, you know what, this sounds really interesting, but like, I still struggle with thinking that Jesus is controversial or that Jesus divides people or that Jesus makes these really radical demands. Like, what would you encourage to maybe your moderate self and and whatever that encouragement or suggestion or advice would be, uh, I would imagine would be really helpful for this person who may be listening that finds themselves in that similar space? Well, ask yourself who you're listening to. I think calls for political pluralism, for politics not getting into getting in between family members, for bipartisanship to rule, I think those calls come from the world. I think that when you can't make a stand, the world wants you to do that. We see the media doing this all the time. They Mm. can't call the president a liar. They can't say something is racist. They say it's racially tinged. And when you see the forces around you unable to make political stances, and then you mimic those forces, you have to wonder who is motivating you to do that. Is it how the world works or is it how Jesus works? Because Mm -hmm. I think Jesus calls us to take a side, to take a stand. I think that's clear. And so keep paying attention to who's informing you. And then listen, pay attention to the plurality of voices of minorities and what they're saying. Listen to their experiences. Pay close attention. You know, I did at some point think that a third way was necessary. Now, well, I wouldn't even say a third way. There was one, I am currently dissatisfied with our choices for political office. I can usually pick the lesser of two evils. But when it was like two neoliberals, when it was like Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, and the big issue was healthcare, and we had Romney care in Massachusetts, and then Obamacare for the for the whole country, but they're the same policy. It's like, yeah, what is the material difference between these two? It isn't that significant, right? So we can imagine a more radical way. I remember I was disappointed even as as a Bernie Sanders supporter when my choices were Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I didn't realize how bad Trump was going to be and he proved to be. So then, I mean, I think he gave us an opportunity to say, oh, there's a clear difference here. 
you know, there's a, there's a clear moment where you can say opposition to fascism is something all Christians should be galvanized in. And the United States had a confusing journey about that. Mm-hmm. The theology that happened in the 20th century was largely oriented around how to make sure the Holocaust didn't happen again, how to make sure that Nazis didn't take over Europe, right? And the United States was actually part of that project in terms of defeating the Nazis. It's curious that we're actually uh, fomenting fascism in the United States now. So politics being informed by the experience of the oppressed seems to make sense to me and makes sense theologically to me. So like, for people wondering, where am I going to find a moderate path? Or is Jesus supposed to be controversial? Jesus isn't fundamentally controversial. But if it is controversial to oppose forces of death, then Jesus is. Jesus mm-hmm. isn't looking for controversy. But we live right. in a time where apparently saying it's inappropriate to tolerate people who think minorities are less than dignified versus those very minorities siding with those minorities if that's a controversy then be controversial and we should wonder why it is a controversy right one side is fine with black people getting killed by cops and the other side is black people not even people who oppose that like literally the victims so Mm -hmm. like there isn't there we we shouldn't be cute about that right you know don't try to find a third way between arsons and people who live in houses it's clear you know right the one thing that I find, and again, you've described this political situation, and I know you don't necessarily want to like dive too much into like contemporary American politics. We can though. Go ahead. Yeah, I. But it's so difficult right now, you know, especially with like with, with what's happened over those last couple of years now with Joe Biden as president, and obviously, you know, coming off of uh, a Trump presidency, and it likely again in 2024 it's being Joe thing. Biden versus Trump. And like, like, how should somebody who thinks that Jesus takes a side, that Jesus takes a side for the oppressed, how do we navigate such a weird, interesting American politics for this American Christian who's like, you know, deciding, yes, Jesus does take a side for the oppressed? Because it does seem as if, yes, one side is clearly fascist, and then there's this like kind of halfway between the two kind of thing. And it just doesn't seem like there really is a candidate that would likely be a person who would align with our understanding of the gospel then. And like, what should we do with that? And I'm just kind of curious, like what your thoughts are. You did mention about maybe like lesser of two evils, but can we continue to keep doing that is kind of what I'm curious too. So the last two, two or three chapters of the book address this. On one hand, it's important for us to be as like, like voting take, is, is worth the time it takes to do it. And we should be creating a society where it doesn't take a lot of effort to vote. So like enfranchisement of populations, ending gerrymandering and voting laws and rights, that's important to, because we don't want it to take a lot of time. And we want to engage practically in what we can do right now. If we can lessen suffering and oppression then let's do that, you know, but, but Joe Biden isn't going to liberate like Jesus. We already know that, you know, I cringed when I voted for Joe Biden. Right. And I thought the Democrats demonstrated no moral leadership. I mean, the hypocrisy was so clear. It's not Brett Kavanaugh. They really did the right thing by investigating the allegation, the sexual allegation, sexual assault allegations against him. That was good. 
But when they didn't do that, when Joe Biden had Tara Reid accuse him of sexual assault, they just demonstrated, oh, we're not going to be moral leaders here. Right. We're not going to be moral leaders because Joe Biden has a bad track record. And so we have to actually understand that when we make practical political choices, they have a, they're, they're limited in, in their efficacy, so to speak. They're limited in, in what they can do. They are just what we can do with what we've got. We do our best now to be practical, but we don't let these, this political economy or this political spectrum stifle our imaginations, right? So on one hand, do what's practical, but also believe that more is possible, that mm. we can prophetically imagine new things, that we don't, that we can imagine a world without police and a world without prisons, that we can imagine a world without income inequality and oppression. Right. The Democrats aren't going to tell us that. The Democrats are running on a pro-cop ticket in the midterm elections, hoping that they win, right? Mm. That sort of moral compromise is sickening, right? right. Um, we should be going... Christians need to lead the imagination to abolition. And if we don't do that, if we get stuck in the practical political framework, we're doing a disservice to the gospel. But likewise, if we're only imagining prophetically and not engaging politically, we might be missing basic opportunities for rights for human beings, Mm. Uh, basic opportunities, right? I don't write about this in the book, but I'll give you an example of it. Jesus enters in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his disciples are saying Hosanna and they're making a big ruckus. And the Pharisees who are friends of Jesus tell him, hey, quiet down your disciples. They're causing too much problems. Mm-hmm. They are like someone saying to black kids in the neighborhood, hey, take it easy when the cops are around. They might mm-hmm. get you. And Jesus dies at the end of the week. So he's not paying. He's not trying to be politically um, polite. Similarly, Martin Luther King worked with Lyndon B. Johnson to pass the Voting Rights Act, the first of, of 1965 and had a very collegial relationship with LBJ and endorsed him and they were working together. And that's a beautiful relationship for progress. But then LBJ announced a surge, a troop of, a, a surge of troops in Vietnam. And then Martin Luther King vocally opposed the Vietnam War and, and, and severed his relationship with Lyndon Johnson because he was listening to the prophetic right. call of God and it didn't work conveniently politically and also america kind of turned their back on mlk not during the civil rights movement but actually his stance against vietnam like there you go. his his approval rating totally plummeted once he came out opposed to vietnam that that was really fascinating to me when i first heard that absolutely absolutely right so too much concern for like political politeness for political efficacy compromises our prophecy but when we're too prophetic, we miss, not too prophetic, but when we're not practical enough, we miss opportunities that can give people basic dignity, especially on the local level, if I can say that. Right. Well, and it also seems to me that if we say that the gospel is political, voting is not the only way that the gospel is political can be manifested. There are so many other ways to be engaged politically. And I think we sometimes have this like really, really horrible imagination around what it means to be involved politically, where the only thing that we resort to is voting. And so if that is the only way that you engage politically, then yeah, someone like Joe Biden versus Trump is going to be a tough choice if you have this radical politics. But a radical politics should move you well beyond voting and that there's so many other ways to be engaged. When, When Bloomberg was buying all the YouTube ads and making a commotion during the 2020 election, I told my friends, and I got reamed for this, because 
they were a lot of them were vote blue no matter who and i'm like well maybe not no matter who you know if it's one billionaire oligarch versus another i'm not interested in doing this because to me that means the fabric of our democracy is totally destroyed and it's it's on its way there don't get me wrong but i still reserve the right not to vote elected officials still have to compel me to vote for them i don't do it out of civic duty or responsibility i still do it as a response to the oppressed and if the Democrats can't convince me to vote, that's on them. You know, right. I don't have I don't need to guilt people into voting if the choices suck, you know. Right. And you can see where the uh, the Democrats are, especially now with Roe v. Wade very likely about to be overturned. And the only Democratic response is just vote as if like that's not already what we did. And the people who we voted in have done nothing. Yeah, and the and, and Democratic leadership are still sponsoring people that don't support the filibuster, that don't support packing the court, that don't support any practical solutions to changing this outcome. So right. we also need courageous leadership. No, a- absolutely. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. I can imagine, knowing my listenership, that somebody's listening to this right now and totally agrees with you. They're very politically active, but they come from maybe more conservative evangelical circles. And because of that, they have lots of friends and family who not only are different politically, but might actually be active in politics that are oppressing people. And so what I'm kind of curious about then is what sort of advice or suggestions would you make to that person of how they should relate to people that they dearly love, but also are people who very well might be actively oppressing people? I'm just really curious, like how we navigate those types of relationships. So. I hope my mother isn't listening to this podcast because I'm not out to her as bi. Okay. And I couldn't be out to her as bi or else it would totally break her heart. She's an Egyptian immigrant and she's never going to change her mind about that barring a miracle. And it's not my job to convince her to do that. Right. And I think we should free ourselves from thinking that it is our job to change people's minds politically. What that means. and, And then you have to navigate how you relate to your family the way that you need to. Family systems are different. I think Melissa Flora Bixler in her book, How to Have an Enemy, gets into this when she talks about what true familia is versus family. And she ain't mm-hmm. telling you don't go to Thanksgiving because your racist uncle's there, but you should be asking questions. You know, Some of us will want to combat in that setting, 
But the people that we hope are listening aren't the ones that are watching Tucker every night, but the ones that are a little confused about what's happening. So we might take a stand on social media or in person or in conversations to convince the undecided, to convince the apolitical, to convince the convicted but not committed to take a stand. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is very efficacious to spend your time convincing people who are much more far right or conservative than you are of your viewpoints. You can talk about getting vaccinated. You can talk about Black Lives Matter until you're blue in the face and not convince them because the forces that are influencing them are just unfortunately greater than are us as individuals. And so mm -hmm. I think like some humility is appropriate. Like it can, it's galvanizing to have those conversations. It, and, and it was for me, like when I grew up, my dad and I would have major political disputes. I never convinced them of anything, but I helped form my ideas in that arena. Mm. So I want to name that. But now I don't talk to my dad about politics, except to just really just have fun. Like I don't try to get into a political discourse with him because he ain't convincing me of anything. And I'm not convincing of him because we listen to other people more. And so I would not spend a lot of time trying to convince conservative family members that, that don't trust you more than they trust cable news, more than they trust Facebook disinformation of m much politics. I do think that's generally a waste of time. Right. It could help people listening and it can help you form your ideas. But I don't think that individual conversations are how is how progress can be made. And I think that's discouraging to Christians because we do believe in such an incarnational faith where like right. a lot happens in relationship in the community and circle of hope understands that too, but let's look for people who are ready to be moved with the spirit, who have an availability to change, who already have a conviction for the oppressed. Right. I love that you just brought that last point up because that's exactly what I was about to say that my political journey of become, you know, from being a, conservative evangelical right-wing kind of political position to where I'm at now as like this abolitionist, even flirting with anarchism. Mm -hmm. That journey from step to step to step was never because I was convinced necessarily of any argument or having a debate with somebody and then me thinking, wow, that was actually a really good point. Maybe I need to change my whole viewpoint about things. It was actually the spirit of God moving within me because I was already opened up to maybe potentially moving politically. And so I'm really not convinced that it's arguments that change people politically. It's actually the spirit of God. And because of that, my pneumatology has mm -hmm. greatly intensified and strengthened. I really believe the Holy Spirit can do a lot of incredible work in the world and change people's lives. I totally and I believe that even more than when I was a conservative evangelical because I know of the way that the Spirit moved within me in my political journey. And so I'm really glad that you bring up that point because I absolutely agree. It's not arguments. It's not debates that convince people. I really believe it's the Spirit of God. God moving within them. And the spirit of God is clearly on Twitter. And so hot takes on Twitter <laughs> help people, right? That's right. That's right. That's why I, I think the spirit of God is always moving uh, through, through my Twitter account. <laughs> I actually, I can, I can imagine lots of my friends who are like, that absolutely is not true, Mason. Your, your Twitter is definitely of Satan. Oh, you're a good time on Twitter, man. I try. I try. Well, those kind of conversations with people who like greatly differ, I, I really, 
yeah, I, I really kind of struggle with and I'm trying to always think through like what what does it mean for me to relate to people that I really deeply love who they greatly differ for, from me in, in my politics. The one other kind of question I have around this, and you've kind of talked a little bit about like political plurality or pl political pluralism is how you put it. And I'm kind of interested, you know, we have obviously have been talking a lot about how like neoliberalism and this like sort of third way type of thing like is not what Jesus is asking of That's us. That's right. But I am interested, like obviously like from kind of more of a leftist or left framework, there are lots of different ways of thinking about politics, you know, from socialism to Marxism to anarchism to, you know, you name it. There's so much difference even within kind of left-wing politics and i'm kind of curious like obviously we're not necessarily talking about this like political pluralism between like the right and the left but there does seem to be a lot of pluralism even within the left itself and so i'm kind of mm -hmm. curious like how you think through this plurality that's happening even amongst the left and like how you think through all of the different ways of engaging politics that clearly is expressed um, on that side of the debate. So I think that commonality and goals and, and, and objectives is really important, right? Mm. If we have commonality about what liberation of the oppressed looks like, even if we have commonality about local laws, then we can tolerate political differences for how to achieve those policy goals. Right. So agreement about what the end result is, is important, right? Um, and then we can tolerate political differences because, you know, even among, even among socialists, there's going to be political diversity in different schools of thought. And, right. you know, no one hates leftists more than leftists. So <laughs> there is often dispute among leftists, sectarian dispute, you could say, among leftists that don't allow us to come together for one common end because we're too busy fighting each other. If we can come to compromise and agreements about how to make the same end goals occur, we're in, we're in good territory. So intellectual diversity and political diversity is appropriate if our end goals and our end policy goals are united. At that point, I think we can find unity. But if we don't agree about the issues, if we don't agree about police brutality, if we don't agree about income inequality, if we don't agree about LGBTQIA dignity, then then political pluralism doesn't is is violence. It right, is not right. good. We are more interested in making our politics not consequential, you know. Right, right. But if we have the same consequences and end results in mind, then I think we can tolerate political differences. Right. Just like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, if if, if there's a church, despite all of its political difference, if there's a church that is committed to the oppress, then that's a united church. And so I think it's similar when it comes to all the different types of politics that exist on the left, that you can have all of these differences. But at the end of the day, as long as they're committed to the oppressed and caring and in solidarity with the oppressed, then at least there's some level of unity that exists in that kind of left wing politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a similar kind of analogy totally agree. In there. Yeah. How do you hope Jesus Takes a Side inspires and liberates its readers? I hope that it helps people who agree with the text to help, to, 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 to inspires them to connect with people who lack political commitments, don't participate politically, or have political conviction, but are anxious or apprehensive about political participation to do that. Mm. Because I think that there are a lot of people out there that see neo-fascism and want to stop it. 
they see uh, police brutality and they want to stop it. They see white supremacy, homophobia, and ableism and want to stop it, but they're hesitant to engage politically in practical ways. So mm-hmm. I hope it helps people do that. I hope it gives people courage to take a stance, and I hope it gives churches and pastors a chance to uh, be the political vehicles they can be and doesn't allow far-right politicalization of the gospel to make us shy about what the gospel is truly saying, right? Right. I think a lot of people are anxious about engaging politically because they see the moral majority, they see the religious right, and they say, they politicize the gospel, so I want to do something different. No, the gospel is political. We just have to talk about the politics of the Bible, the politics, Mm -hmm. the side of the oppressed. I hope it Mm -hmm. helps people do that. Yeah. This sort of reminds me of a conversation I've had with others about how, you know, as much as I vehemently disagree with conservative evangelicals, there are kind of foundational moral frameworks that they're using within their politics that I think actually is somewhat similar to like us, like left wing kind of radical people and that is that like there is something extremely wrong about the world and that it is urgent that we do something about it and i think in a lot of ways you know conservative evangelicals kind of have that urgency and that sense that there's something really flawed and evil happening and i actually because of that believe that it's actually much more likely that a conservative evangelical is moved become, to become some sort of leftist, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm, totally. Then it is for some sort of person who grew up in the political middle, neoliberal kind of space, and for them to recognize the urgency and need for radical politics. And that's why I see, like, so many of these ex-evangelical people, including myself, don't just normally, not always, but normally don't just resort to becoming this kind of neoliberal centrist person. A lot of them end up having this really radical politics. And I find that really, really fascinating that a lot of the moral concerns that they might have had while they were a conservative evangelical really translate well over to that left-wing political understanding that they might now have. Totally, totally. So uh, with all of that said, last question, Johnny, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? I have a blog, johnnyrashid.com, where you can see things that I'm writing. You can follow me on Twitter, at Johnny Rashid as well, and Instagram. If you're interested in the Food Pastor stuff and my food stuff, go to Food food Pastor would be the Instagram handle there. And our church also has a podcast. I'd love to have you on sometime, Mason, called Resist and Restore. Uh, We have some cool guests coming on this season, so I hope that you can uh, participate in that as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Johnny. This is definitely a book. Like I've been having these conversations with you and others on Twitter and and elsewhere for a while now. And it's definitely something that I've become passionate about. And I'm so glad that you made this book because now I can share that same passion that I have with others. Um, And so I'm really thankful and grateful that this book now exists in the world. So thank you so much uh, for chatting more about it. Thanks for the chance, dude. If you'd like to connect with Johnny and Idol Threat and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon 
at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.